0: Opportunity Zones are this real estate play that all my rich friends are using right now. Like it's just in the air. I'm all for rich people having
1: good ideas about how to fix our economy. I'm not for letting them write the rules.
0: Opportunity Zones are yet another example of the way in which the neoliberal ideology has shaped policy in ways that was sold as a benefit to everybody, but really only benefits the top 1%.
2: So Nick, it's the holiday season and and I'm kind of stuck. What do we get you, the man who has everything? How about a giant tax cut? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, how about, what could our listeners give you in appreciation Uh, for this podcast? Yeah,
0: well, you know what? It really helps us so much when you listeners leave us reviews and ratings. I know it doesn't seem like a big deal, but believe it or not, it really makes a difference in the reach of the podcast. And so please uh, tell your friends and family about the show and please leave us reviews and ratings. It is so awesome when you do.
2: Okay, that's a, that sounds great. And uh, speaking of tax cuts, Nick, uh, yeah. this episode is, is like a gift for you.
0: It is. It is. Uh, today, we get to talk with David Wessel. Uh, who is a senior fellow in economic studies at Brookings, and director of the Hutchins Center on Fiscal and Monetary Policy. He's a former Wall Street Journal reporter who has been in the political economy game for a long time. He he actually interviewed me a million years ago, and he's the author of this really interesting uh, recent book, called Only the Rich Can Play, How Washington Works in the New Gilded Age, the story of Opportunity Zones. And why I'm I'm super excited to have the conversation is that, you know, Opportunity Zones are this real estate play that was made possible by the Trump tax cut of 2017 that all my rich friends are using right now. Like it's of just uh, like it's just in the air. And It's basically a way of shielding taxes for rich people sold as a benefit for poor people. But anyway, I think it'll be really interesting to talk to David about this provision and the way in which it's shaping our economy. If past is prologue, you know, if you're wealthy and own assets in the current economy, you know, benefits will just accrue to you because that's the way the code is written.
1: I'm David Wessel. I'm director of the Hutchins Center on Fiscal and Monetary Policy at the Brookings Institution, and the author of a new book on opportunity zones called "Only the Rich Can Play: How Washington Works in the New Gilded Age."
0: Uh, that's fantastic. So, uh, David, uh, I'm fascinated to have this conversation with you, and uh, excited that you wrote this book because so many of my wealthy friends are. Uh, engaged in this Opportunity Zone thing. Uh, And in fact, I absolutely know that a ton of rich people are getting richer using this uh, strategy. So can you explain for our listeners what an Opportunity Zone is in broad strokes? Opportunity Zones, which were part of the 2017
1: tax bill, created 8,764 tax havens across the United States, census tracts in which if someone has a capital gain, they take their profits, they get a discount on their capital gains and they get to pay the capital gains tax a little later. And paying taxes later is always better than paying them sooner. And then the big benefit is if they invest in almost anything in an opportunity zone and they hold that investment for 10 years, they don't have to pay any capital gains taxes whatsoever on any profits.
0: Can you explain that by using an example with numbers? Sure. So let's say I have some stock
1: and I bought it a long time ago. Say it's I was smart enough to buy stock at Apple and I'm sitting on $100,000 worth of capital gains. Of course, the way our tax code works now, I don't have to pay any taxes on that stock if I hold it. But the day I sell it, I'm going to own capital gains taxes. So let's say if I have $100,000 worth of profits, I'm gonna owe about $28,000 worth of capital gains taxes. If I choose to sell that stock and put it into an opportunity zone, I get a discount on that capital gains tax, let's say roughly 10%, and I don't have to pay that tax until 2026. So that's the incentive for me to get immediately. I get to delay, I get to sell my stock, I get the profits, I can use them, I can defer paying capital gains taxes for several years, and I don't have to pay the full twenty-eight thousand dollars. Then I can take that hundred thousand-dollar profit and invest it in anything—an office building, a business, self-storage facilities, almost anything. Not a liquor store, not a massage parlor, not a golf course. There's a list like that in the law. And if I hold on to it for ten years, and in, it's, anything in an opportunity zone, anything in an opportunity zone. Okay. Okay. Yes. So I, yeah, though so okay. it has to be in one of these. 8,764 census tracts that have been so designated. I put my $100,000 profit into that building or business in an opportunity zone. And presumably I make money on it. So let's say in 10 years, it's worth $200,000. Right. I don't have to pay any taxes on that $100,000
2: profit. Sweet, so like you could build a luxury hotel.
1: Indeed. So in the book, I have an example of the Ritz-Carlton condos and hotel complex in downtown Portland, Oregon. And the condos are selling for beginning at $1.5 million, up to $7 million each. And the investors in that project are basically reducing their capital gains tax by investing in that project. So there's no requirement that the investment help the people in the community and no rules that you even have to assert that this is a project you're only doing because of the
0: opportunities on tax break. So, you know, at the end of the day, it was a scheme to turn low value real estate into high value real estate.
1: <laughs> I <guess>. Well,
0: <laughs> I don't know. That
1: might be a generous interpretation. Yeah.
0: yeah. Okay. How about <laughs> yeah. the alternative?
1: It was a scheme to cut the financing costs for some real estate projects that would have been built anyways.
0: Yeah, wow, okay.
1: Uh, And the thing that's interesting is that because this thing was structured in a way with very little oversight from the treasury, no limit on how many people can reduce their capital gains taxes by doing it, no cap on, on how much money the treasury can lose, the money is naturally flowing to those opportunity zones that were already beginning to draw some investment, the ones that were either already gentrifying or should probably never have been picked in the first place. And so we don't have very much data, unfortunately, because the reporting provisions got stripped out of the bill as it went through the Senate uh, legislative process. But some economists who are affiliated with the Joint Tax Committee on Congress got a look at 2019 tax returns, and they found that 84% of all the opportunity zones got zero money and half the money went to the best off 1% of the zones. And that's what you'd expect. Profit-seeking investors are are taking advantage of the program, they're not breaking any rules. I have a line in the book about don't blame blame the players, blame the game. Uh, There was nothing to lead them to do anything differently.
2: And this was a proposal that was sold as uh, targeting uh, geographic inequality, right?
1: Absolutely. So, the interesting history of this proposal, and one of the reasons why I got interested in it as a book, is it didn't begin at some think tank or some presidential campaign policy shop. It was the brainchild of Sean Parker, the guy who founded Napster, was involved in the early days of Facebook, and was played by Justin Timberlake in the movie The Social Network. And Parker, who I think was well-intentioned, saw lots of places that he thought needed money— lots of rich people who had money. His original idea was not real estate, but to help seed new startup businesses. And so he created a think tank in Washington, the Economic Innovation Group, uh, very successfully built a little coalition behind this proposal. And then one of his key moves was to enlist Tim Scott, the Republican Senator from South Carolina, who was pivotal to the 2017 tax bill, and managed to get this included in that legislation.
2: Have you talked to Parker? Because I got about halfway through your book and I did not see any interview with Parker himself.
1: Yes, I did talk to
2: Parker. And does he feel like he succeeded? I mean, does he feel like it's worked?
1: He basically looks at this the way a software entrepreneur would think of version 1.0. He thinks it's worked. And if there are problems, we should fix them. He doesn't, yeah, one of the difficulties of having so little data is that people who like opportunity zones can and do cite examples of them being used for their desired purpose. I describe in the book uh, uh, a guy in South LA, Martin Woto, who's doing affordable housing. He was in the affordable housing business before. He's kind of supercharged his little business by uh, getting opportunity zone money. Um, Downtown Erie, Pennsylvania is another place where it seems to be being used for the desired purpose. So they cite those examples. The critics cite the outrageous examples like the Portland Ritz-Carlton. My view is from the reporting I did that there's more of the latter than the former, but Sean Parker hasn't conceded that yet. And he hasn't talked to me since the book came out.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I I don't know Sean Parker, but I suspect that you're right. He was well-intentioned. And if you are steeped in neoliberalism, as he no doubt is, you know, this theory of change makes perfect sense, right? Is that, you know, the way you benefit the poor is by giving the right incentives to the rich and all will be well.
1: Absolutely. And I think the other thing he believes, and I think this is similar to some of his peers in Silicon Valley, is basically I'm pretty smart and I've been successful And I probably have better ideas than all those bureaucrats and social scientists in Washington. So I'm going to he talks about hacking the system. So he looks at this as a hack of the system and that what he misses, I believe, is um, the benefits of the system. He shunned any opportunity to add into this proposal the kind of guardrails that a lot of the do-gooders would have recommended and he rejected. And secondly, he way, way, way underestimated the size and aggressiveness of the tax avoidance community. So people who make their money advising rich people on how to cut their taxes. Right. Which is insanely pervasive. (laughs) It's just... No, I mean, I went to this, in the book I described, when I was thinking about doing this book, I heard about there was an Opportunity Zone Expo at the Mandalay Bay Casino and Resort in Las Vegas. And I said to myself, I don't know if I'm going to take on this project, but if I do, and I didn't go to this Las Vegas thing with visions of the big short lurking in the back of my head, I'm going to forever regret it. So I go to this conference and it's unbelievable. It is like witnessing a 21st century gold rush. The number of people there who are either selling their services to rich people or people who are rich people trying to figure out how to cut their taxes or people with projects looking for ways to get rich people to invest in them. It was hundreds of people and the most extroverted, it was a reporter's dream. The most extroverted people <laughs> you've ever meet, who you take out Who's your probably never met a reporter. And they're saying, well, the thing about these conferences is they say things in, from the podium that they would never say if you were interviewing them on TV, because it would be embarrassing. Like, yeah. you know, this is a dumb idea, uh, I don't think it's going to help poor people, but it's sure been good for my business, Hey, eh? You know, and you kind of sit there and say, so my favorite is the woman I sat next to um, from L.A., uh, who told me, I asked her why she was there. And she said, well, a friend of her was in the real estate business. He asked her to run his opportunities on real estate fund, but she turned him down. I said, why? She said, well, frankly, I already have a boatload of money. I made a lot of money in real estate. I'm not interested. So I said, so why pay $500 to come to this conference in, in Las Vegas? And she said, well... I bought this Andy Warhol painting shortly after he died, and it's worth a couple million dollars more than I pay for it. So I'm thinking of selling the painting and investing the proceeds in an opportunity zone, so I wanted to figure out more about it. I wasn't smart enough in that encounter to ask her what it was a painting of, but when I followed up with her later, and I've seen the painting since, it's a painting of three dollar signs literally a painting of $3 signs. So like, you know, it's just too good to turn down these kind of stories.
2: So what you were, what you're describing at, at, at the casino was a, uh, a free market allocating resources efficiently, right? I guess. Yes, yes. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, I I that's right. I, I mean, hadn't thought of it that way, but yeah. That I mean, that's the whole yeah. idea behind opportunity zones, right? We're gonna right. we're gonna allow the market to allocate this capital, and everybody will benefit, and just free up the market to do its magic.
1: Right. So the two things that they the two parts of it that I think they missed one is if you really want to use that mechanism to devote money to poor communities. You got to put more guardrails and more and target it more. Yeah, that might not work, but at least you got to do that. And secondly, uh, to quote a guy I know at the Kresge Foundation, which was interested in opportunity zones and then soured on them, Aaron Siebert, he said he came to the conclusion that just putting money into a poor community is not sufficient. You have to ask what the money's for. So if you're building, as I said, self-storage facilities, that's great for people who have a lot of junk to store, but You don't create a lot of jobs, and in some communities, governors inexplicably designated university towns as opportunity zones, they show up as poor in the census because college kids don't have much income, so there's a little cottage industry of building luxury rental student housing. For students whose parents can afford to rent them a place, they don't have to live in the lousy dorms. And there's those people are getting opportunities on money, so they they had too much. It's as if they thought every rich person is a social invest social impact investor. And
0: why would you think that? I don't think there's any evidence. Well, I mean, that's just that's just hardcore neoliberal. Yeah, exactly ideology, right? Again, you know, that's just that is what was taught continues to be taught in universities. That you know, concentrated capital is the source of all prosperity in human societies, and when it's allocated, magical positive things happen. Right? This this just straight right. up orthodox. Exactly. Of course, it's nonsense. Exactly. But you know, there are classrooms filled with kids learning that today in America. So you know, it's not surprising. Yeah, it, that- it's
1: more than that. It's not just what's being taught in schools. It's the rhetoric of the Republican Party. So when you listen to Tim Scott, the primary sponsor of this legislation, you think that opportunity zones are solving problems that the great society failed to solve, that all we need to do is get government out of the way, let rich people invest, let the market work, and everybody will live happily ever after. And when you listen to his version of this, you think that we cured poverty because he of this legislation even though it's not really that big and just getting started. And so that that's taken hold of a whole set of people. Government is the problem. Yeah. Begins with Ronald Reagan but it's being reinforced now by people like Tim Scott. The market is the answer. Get government out of the way and the money will flow to solve our problems.
2: Okay, so so speaking of getting government out of the way, let, let's talk a little bit about how this this was passed. How did how did Parker and his team do this?
1: Parker forms this, funds this think tank, the Economic Innovation Group. Uh, he hires two guys, one a Democrat, one a Republican, young 30 something Washington insiders, to run it. They spend a couple of years laying the foundation for the problem, the problem being geographic inequality. The fact, which is true, that we have lots of left behind communities in the United States. And the gap between prosperous and poor communities is widening, not narrowing. And so first they lay, they create, they very skillfully identify the problem. They come up with some real uh, good indices that uh, locate which are the bad zip codes in the U.S. Um, They bring Kevin Hassett, the Republican economist, and Jared Bernstein, the Democratic economist, into the thing. And they do this kind of white paper, which they cite as if it's uh, the fifth book of the Bible. Uh, even though it's rather vague. And only once they've laid the groundwork for geographic inequality as a problem, do they pop up and say, and by the way, we have this solution, Opportunity Zones. They build a bipartisan coalition in Congress for this thing, I think in a couple of ways. One is it's a great talking point. Who could be against doing something that gets more money to poor neighborhoods? Most of the sponsors don't ever read beyond the talking points. And Sean Parker himself Turns out to be a pretty charming and effective lobbyist. Helped a bit by his campaign contributions. But even more than that, he's a very engaging guy. I talked to members of Congress who talked to him. And he just, he enjoyed talking to members of Congress and bringing him on, on board. So they have this legislation. It's proposed in 2016. It's going nowhere. Lots of bills are introduced in Congress. And then the key, as I said before, is Tim Scott very quietly gets it inserted into the Tax Cut and Jobs Act of 2017 so quietly that no national newspaper even notices it until a month after the Trump signs the bill into law. And that was deliberate. Once they got it in the bill, they didn't want to talk about it because that could only cause trouble. It never had a hearing. It was scrubbed in a very cursory way by the Joint Tax Committee staff, so there are some changes made. But um, the, the Treasury was faced with a rather rough piece of legislation had had the power to write some regulations, which it did, but the Trump treasury wrote regulations, which as the EIG guys like to say, were very taxpayer friendly. That is more friendly to investors than to the poor people in the communities this was supposed to help. Amazing,
0: but not surprising. So, so David, tell us the story of how you came to this. Why did you write this book? How did you figure it out? I work at the Brookings
1: Institution and one of my colleagues, is a public finance economist named Adam Looney, who had worked in the Obama Treasury, who can get more exercised and morally outraged about small provisions in the tax code than anybody I've ever met. I mean, <laughs> he would come into my office and, and, and describe how the distillery industry was ripping off the taxpayers by, you know, stuff. In fact, he al- he, al- he proposed once that he should Uh, spend a year taking every pot, create a distillery and getting every tax benefit possible and then writing a book about it. So he mentioned this to me. I hadn't heard about it. I was kind of interested in this question of place-based policies. And I thought this is kind of like Brookings white paper kind of stuff. And then he just mentioned in passing that Sean Parker was involved and was in fact responsible for this. Well, suddenly it went from a uh, a white paper to like, oh, this could be a good narrative. And that's what really turned me on to it. And as I said, I went to Las Vegas. I didn't know that would be like the best reporting of the whole trip, Las Vegas. Um, and, and it seemed like a, a good thing to do. I think, it, um, I think it does tell a story about how Washington works in that a rich guy Let's say he's well-intentioned, manages to spend a few million dollars and get some social program into law without much scrutiny. And now all these people are taking advantage of it, while there's all sorts of other programs, uh, proposals that languish. Um, I'm all for rich people having good ideas about how to fix our economy. I'm not for letting them write the rules uh, and, and put them into law.
2: You hear that, Nick? Well intentioned yeah, rich rich. Uh, yeah, guys. I know, I know, I know. Yeah, oh, yeah. somebody on that <laughs> on <this> call <laughs> that
0: may, resem- may resemble that remark.
2: You mentioned, David, that you used a couple examples. I know in the book you mentioned Erie PA in South Central LA, where apparently the, right. you know, these are going into um, uh census tracts that need the money. Yeah. In those areas, do you know is it actually is it actually improving the lives of low-income people? Yeah, I
1: think so. But here's the point. Is it possible to use this for the intended purpose? Yes. Is there any requirement that it be used for that purpose? No. Does the bulk of the money go to those purposes? My judgment, subject to change if we get more data, is that the bulk is going to things that don't need it. I spent a lot of time in Baltimore, which is a troubled city that... Mm-hmm. if any place deserved the money. And I didn't find very many projects in the gritty neighborhoods of Baltimore. Yeah. In Erie, Erie is a fascinating place. It's a very poor downtown. There was a, a grassroots, well, I shouldn't say, there was a local business-led effort to revive the downtown, spurred in part by a very unusual insurance company, Erie Insurance, which is based in Erie. It's a New York Stock Exchange company, but all the voting stock is controlled by the family of the founders. Somehow they got a New York Stock Exchange Fortune 100 company, but all the voting shares are in the founding family. And the uh, recently retired CEO who married into the family says that uh, some people wanted to move out of Erie. And he said, no, we're we're staying in Erie. And they put a lot of money into the downtown. Opportunity Zones came along and they managed to leverage that to finance a project that was already underway. Um, Solar Impact in South LA is a different story. Basically, Uh, I think they're, as best I can tell, they're improving the housing stock of South LA. Uh, They renovate and rent to Section 8 federally subsidized tenants. They have a fairly good reputation. And because they got opportunities on money, they are able to do more houses and they're doing a little business incubator. So I think in those cases, it is. And I did find one tiny project in Baltimore. It's a block that looks like it's completely bombed out. It's like six row houses with only one, one building still standing, the rest are look like Dresden after World War II. Mm -hmm. And the developer there got about a million and a half dollars of Opportunity Zone money to rehab those. That's basically one of the smaller condos in Portland. So it gives you a sense of where the money is going.
0: But I mean, I think that, you know, the high level question, of course, isn't, uh, you know, can we find examples where the intent of the act was met, but rather how much in aggregate are we spending on this program? And could it be spent better helping disadvantaged people? Exactly, that's exactly Uh, the right question. question. Do you have any idea how much in aggregate this program is costing taxpayers? So it's a guess, we're guessing here.
1: The program was very carefully structured so that it doesn't quote cost much in the first 10 years. And that's important because when Congress considers legislation, it looks at the 10-year price tag. And because the people have to pay taxes in 2026, that means that there's some revenue in 2026 that makes the 10-year cost look very low. I don't know what it's going to cost afterwards. My guess is, and I, I want to underscore guess, that somewhere around $75 to $100 billion has been invested in Opportunity Zones so far. And so all the revenue loss will come after the 10-year window. And so we know that some of those properties will be profitable, and presumably a lot of the profits will be uh, avoid taxes, but it's really hard to know without knowing what the next 10 years will be like. Um, there are a number of other provisions that make it even more attractive to real estate. Now, the trouble is that Tens of billions of dollars doesn't sound like a lot in the current context when Congress is debating trillion-dollar bills, but when you look at the amount of money that's spent on these place-based policies aimed at poor people, it's significant. And so Annie Donovan, who was at the Treasury and is now at uh, LISC, the Low Income Support Corporation, or something, she she says like I think the money lost to the Treasury on this would have been better spent if you said to the money we're going to invest directly in minority and women-owned businesses in poor neighborhoods. And I do sometimes think that running the, a system where you have to run this stuff through the tax code with all the leaks and bends and, and people trying to siphon money off, it, the, the alternative is, of course, just raise taxes on rich people, and then the government can put the money where it thinks it want to go. We don't have to run it through the whole tax system. And there are days when I think we should just do that. The trouble is it seems to be politically impossible. So this becomes the alternative.
0: Yeah. So, David, we, we would love to ask you our benevolent dictator question, which is, you know, if you were in charge, what would you do? And I think the implication of that question is, would you amend this policy or, or would you eliminate it? Like if you were in charge? Yeah. So in a first
1: for me, I was asked to testify before the House Ways and Means subcommittee. On, and I, on this program, and I was asked that question. And my shorter answer is, we should try and fix it. And if we can't fix it, we should repeal it. And by fixing it, I mean, I would uh, reconsider, I may have fewer zones and have them better chosen. I might give a bigger tax break to neighborhoods that really need it. I would put a lot more restrictions on what the money can be used for. And then the real question is, if you want to do this, should the, tr- the treasury should have to approve an opportunity fund. That it shouldn't be just anybody can follow a thing, I'm an opportunity fund, invest the money. I think that because place-based inequality, geographic inequality is so strong, such a big problem, it's probably worth experimenting with this. My gut is it's not gonna work. We should probably repeal it, but I would try and fix it first. We haven't done a very good job of, of we didn't. this is not a well-designed, well-crafted, well-regulated uh, uh, experiment and I would be willing to try to experiment with a better program before I gave up altogether. But if you ask me, do I think it's gonna work? I would say no.
2: And I presume you would impose reporting requirements. Oh, absolutely. What's the use of having an experiment that doesn't produce any data?
1: Now there there is, to be fair, there is both foes and fans of Opportunity Zones agree we should have more reporting. Some of the people who are friends of opportunity zones want more reporting to the IRS, which then you have a lot of privacy rules that prevent the public and scholars from examining it. But we um, absolutely—I I mean, that's a—we should do that no matter what, because otherwise we're guessing. I have a pretty strong view that I'm right about this, but I stand to be my mind changed. So definitely more reporting, and there there's been some academic work because uh, since. of the census tracts in the U.S. were eligible to be designated. Governors could designate up to 25% of the eligible tracts. The obvious social science here is to look at tracts that were eligible and not designated and compare them to tracts that were designated and see how, how the things worked. But you can't see much unless you know how much Opportunity Zone money went into that thing and for what. So I found this by just talking to people or some people brag on their websites and there's some public disclosure, but as a rule, you can see a building going up in an opportunity zone. And unless somebody tells you, you don't know whether it's an opportunity zone funded project or just a regular real estate
0: project. Yeah. Interesting. So the final question that we ask all our guests is why do you do this work? I learned at the wall street journal and in doing
1: stuff for national public radio that People are really interested in the economy, and often find it hard to understand what's going on. So, what I my goal is to find ways to tell stories that illuminate the economy for people, so we can make the world a better place.
0: I love it. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, great talking to you. Thanks for your work. Okay. okay. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. I, again, I, I don't know Sean Parker, but I suspect he was well intentioned. He's richer than he's richer than shit, and he's not a real estate developer, right? Like uh, opportunity zones are not making an economic difference to Sean Parker, so it's incredibly unlikely that his play was, oh, I'm going to make some more money doing this. I absolutely, if I had to bet, I would bet that he really did think in that classically neoliberal way that concentrated capital is the most important element in the economy. And if you just put it in the right places, everything will be fixed, right? And and that he really believed that by doing this, you would have these investments in places that required needed investment and it would benefit everybody. I just, I don't, I really struggle to believe that he had some sort of nefarious self-serving purpose here. But you know that's what happens when you believe the neoliberal bullshit, and you know this is just yet another example of the way in which that ideology has shaped policy in ways that was sold as a benefit to everybody, but really only benefits the top one percent or one tenth of one percent. That's a classic instantiation of that.
2: Yeah, I think it gets beyond economics, Nick. Um, you know. Uh, our listeners, if uh, maybe you want to go back and listen to our interview with Anand Geerdidas and at the point that he makes about philanthropy, that maybe instead of giving more, the super rich should just take less. Yeah, And, and that has to because, you know, you're you're not necessarily rich just because you're smarter than everybody else. I know you, Nick, you're really smart. You're smarter than most people. But my God, you were so damn lucky and you admit that. Yeah. And, you know, even really smart people make mistakes. We they don't know yeah. everything. Yeah. So, you know, the idea that somebody like Sean Parker can step in and say, ah, everybody else got this wrong. The problem with all of these place based tax credits in the past was that there were too many restrictions too many regulations, too much reporting. If we just remove all that bureaucracy, the market will direct this money where it needs to go. And of course, as usual, uh, the money goes to benefit the the very wealthy.
0: Yeah. But Sean Parker is neither the first nor the last uh, wealthy person to have had a big impact on this kind of policy for better or worse.